chapter 17, John 17. This morning we're going to be reading from verse uh, 6 to verse 16, so a little shorter than the passage that was printed in your bulletin. We pick up Jesus in the middle of his uh, great high priestly prayer. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, Uh, Your son, as he was praying these words, said that he spoke these words uh, that we might have his joy fulfilled in us. And Lord, that's our prayer, that through the preaching of the word here this morning, as we look to the son's ministry on our behalf, we would find great joy and we would find great comfort uh, knowing the work that he is doing for us and that we are kept safe in him. So help us to listen, help me as I preach, that Christ might be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Who you are is uh, really a big deal, isn't it? It can make all the difference in how a given situation turns out. If you're someone important, or if you know the right people, or if you're from the right place, it can uh, tilt a particular situation in your favor. So, for example, uh, there's some anecdotal evidence to suggest that uh, while uh, traveling abroad, citizens of one North American country sometimes try and pass themselves off as citizens of another northern North American country to get a more favorable reception. Or who you are matters when you're boarding a plane. Are you one of the registered seat holders? When you're graduating from school, who you are matters. Are you one of the people who belong to the class of those who have completed all their academic requirements? Uh, when you go to the voting booth, uh, who you are makes a difference. Are you a registered voted, uh, voter? Who I am makes a difference. 
Well, Christopher Ashe, uh, the, the English preacher, posed this question in, in his treatment of our passage, and I think that it was a helpful one because our passage begins by really pressing this question, who are we? As Jesus in, uh, is, is in prayer with his Father, uh, he gives a description of sorts of his disciples. As we saw two weeks ago, Jesus has uh, just prayed that his father would glorify himself uh, in his son in verses 1 to 5, and now Jesus shifts his attention to his disciples. You see that in verse uh, 6. It's Jesus' 11 disciples who are uh, meant by the people whom the father has given to Jesus out of the world. And yet, even though this is true, that, that Jesus' immediate reference is the 11 disciples, I think that Jesus' prayer is one that is... Uh, it's a prayer that he makes for us as well as Christians. I think we have good reason to say that uh, what Jesus prays here for the 11, first of all, is also applicable to us. And he prays these things for you and for me as well if we are Christians. I say this for two reasons. First of all, because what Jesus prays for uh, in uh, verses 6 to 19 uh, for the 11 is very uh, very similar to what he prays for all believers later in the chapter. But also because when Jesus is speaking about the disciples he's praying for, the things that he uses to describe them are really true of every genuine Christian who has ever lived. And the question, uh, who am I, is of the utmost importance to our passage because Jesus is praying for his people, his disciples, You may have noticed that in in verse 9. He said, I am praying for them, for his disciples. And then he goes on to specify, I'm not praying for the world. So the question is, once again, who am I? Am I one of Jesus' disciples? Am I one of his people? Am I one of the ones for whom Jesus prays? Or am I not? So I want to begin by looking at three things that are true of those who belong to Jesus and, and that are true of those for whom Jesus prays. Because only once we've done this are we really prepared to look at what does Jesus actually ask for on his people's behalf. So first, uh, that Jesus' disciples, uh, we need to know that Jesus' disciples are his disciples because they were given to Jesus by the Father. If you're a Christian, uh, there might have been a whole number of steps that were, uh, happened along the way to you becoming a Christian, but first of all, and most foundational, is this one. You, you of all people, were given by the Father to his Son as a gift. You were given as a gift, not because Jesus needed you, uh, not because you were particularly remarkable, neither you nor I were a worthy gift at all, but God chose us Nonetheless, in his grace, he chose you and everyone else who would uh, believe in his son and belong to his son, and he, he took us and he placed us in the hands of his son. If you're new to Christianity, this is what the Bible speaks of elsewhere as, as the doctrine of election or predestination. This truth is unmistakably present in Jesus' prayer. It's mentioned four times in verse 2, twice in verse 6, and in verse 9. Those who belong to Jesus... And those for whom he prays are his, first of all, not because they were born into a certain home, not because they were spiritually perceptive or spiritually inclined, not because they made a decision to believe. They're his because God freely and graciously chose that they should belong to his son, and he gave them to him. 
Second truth about who the disciples are, or who any Christian is really, is that they were given to the Son from out of the world. While Jesus says he doesn't pray for those who are in the world, uh, those who belong to him were those who were taken from the world. In John's Gospel, the uh, word world, cosmos, is used in several different ways, but the most common way that this uh, word is used is to speak of the uh, fallen realm. Uh, so it's, it's uh, the world, uh, which is, is the realm in, in which uh, people don't know God, people uh, don't like God's truth, they don't like who God is. And all Christians once belonged to this realm of unbelief and opposition to God that is the world. So when the Father chose who he would give to the Son, he wasn't assembling sort of pre-established allies, he was redeeming his enemies. He was purchasing, purchasing them out of bondage to the world of sin so that they might belong to him and his son. And having been chosen out of the world, it's also important to note that the disciples did not stay ignorant of God or hostile to God at all. Since God made them his own, they came to know God through the Son and to receive the testimony of God in his Son. They came to be convinced that, that what God said through his son was true. And, and they came to believe that the son's testimony about the father was true. So Jesus' disciples, this third mark of Jesus' disciples, are that they are those who now know and believe God as he has shown himself in his son. This is what we call faith, this knowing and receiving and believing the truth of God as it's found in Jesus. The verbs are significant. A Christian accepts and believes Jesus when he says things like that he's the, the Son of God and that he's one with the Father, that he was sent from the Father to make him known, that Jesus is the one and the only one in whom eternal life is found, that no one knows the Father except as they know him in the Son. So does Jesus pray for me? Well, who am I? While there's no sticker that's placed on people that uh, identify that they are elect, we can begin by asking ourselves, do I believe what Jesus says about himself is true? Have I given myself over to this truth? Is my life shaped by it? That's the ultimate test of whether we actually believe what we say we believe. Does it, does it have an influence upon who we are? And remember uh, that Jesus says in his prayer in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Now, it's important for you to know uh, that this doesn't mean that Jesus is utterly indifferent to the world or those who are still in the world. If we listen to the rest of Jesus' prayer, we'll hear that, that he sends his disciples out into the world so that those in the world might hear their testimony and be saved. But if you think that it's sort of unfair that Jesus would say, okay, there are some who I pray for and there are others who I don't, just consider what Jesus goes on to pray for. Jesus prays that the Father would protect his people from the spiritual opposition of the world while his people are in the world. And he prays that, that uh, the Father would sanctify or set apart his people in the world. So it makes no sense for Jesus to pray for the world here, to pray that the world would be protected from the world, or to pray that, that the Father would, would uh, set apart the world from the world. It just doesn't make sense. This is a prayer that Jesus can only pray for those that are his people, those who have been redeemed out of the world and joined to him by faith. 
So if in answer to the question, who am I this morning, you couldn't say that you're a Christian, the request that Jesus goes on to make in this prayer is uh, not one yet that he makes for you. It's not a prayer that he prays for you. Before he could ever pray this for you, you need to be his disciple, his follower. And if you would do that, then you need to begin by asking him to help you to see him as he really is in his son. And know that he's eager to answer that prayer. But if you're here this morning and by the grace of God you're a Christian, then what we see next in Jesus' prayer, this is for you. Consider the awesome privilege this is of having God in the flesh praying for you. On a a popular television show uh, within the last number of years, there was a scene in which the main character is surprised to meet her uh, political hero. And uh, he greets her by name, uh, which completely destroys any composure she has. And she goes on to jabber, my name just came out of your mouth. Who would believe that someone so important would know us by name? And as we look in at John 17, we overhear this conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And we hear not only that God knows our name, and not only that it comes out from his mouth, but that God the Son is engaged in bringing our greatest needs to the Father on our behalf. It's an incredible privilege. And as Jesus prays for us, we need to keep in mind that he is praying beneath the shadow of the cross. Very shortly, he will be put to death on the cross, and three days later, he'll rise again from the dead, and he'll ascend to go uh, to be with his Father. And Jesus will be leaving his disciples. He will be sending them into the God-hating, Jesus-hating, spiritually darkened world. And it's a dangerous place. You see this reflected in Jesus' prayer. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I was up early with uh, our our two-year-old, and uh, as any parent would do when they wake up early with their child, we uh, put something on the computer to watch, uh, and naturally, being a good father, I put on a documentary Uh, which uh, I'm sure she'll appreciate later in life. Uh, And so I put on uh, uh, Planet Earth 2. One of the scenes uh, that they captured on camera, you know, they got these very vivid uh, shots, were the the first moments of uh, marine iguana hatchlings. Marine iguanas, uh, 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 they live in the Galapagos Islands, and uh, they hatch their eggs close uh, to the water. And in this particular scene, uh, the hatchlings emerge from their eggs uh, in the sand, and within moments, they're being chased by a brood of uh, racer snakes, okay? And so uh, at this point, the dramatic music starts to play, and I find myself being way too emotionally invested in the life of this little reptile uh, as it scampers across the beach with with the the racer snakes right on its tail, because I know that if these snakes uh, catch This helpless baby iguana, it's done for, right? They'll wrap themselves around the iguana and choke the life out of it and devour it. That's the life of a baby marine iguana. They're hunted, they're eyed as a tasty morsel from the moment they they, uh, come to life, pop out of their eggs. Just when it leaps out of the range of one of the snakes, the, the camera catches another snake, jumping, and bam, it's right there, right on its tail. There's no rest uh, from any of these threats. And I thought to myself, this is a a semi-accurate picture of what the Christian life is like in the world. God elects us, 
Uh, he causes us to be born again by his spirit. Suddenly, through new, no work of our own, we're made to be alive in Christ. Uh, and we step into the world and we are weak, we're helpless, we're immature, uh, a little naive. And as we come to life, the world which stands opposed to God and the devil, which John describes as being the ruler, uh, he's the ruler of the world, they're watching. And to them we appear like a tasty morsel. You might remember the Apostle Peter's words that the, that the devil prowls around uh, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I hope you don't think of them overstating my case here or exaggerating. But like those racer snakes, the devil and all the powers of, uh, at his disposal in the world would hunt and harass those who have been born again of God with the purpose of the destruction of their souls. But perhaps you noticed that I said it was a semi-accurate picture of the Christian life. Because they're Marine iguana enters the world and it's truly helpless. It's without help. But that's not true for you as a Christian. Though we're hunted and harassed by the world and by the devil, and though we ourselves have no strength in ourselves, there is someone who is actively engaged in ensuring that we make it safely out of harm's reach. Jesus. Jesus prays for you. He prays for your protection. As we see here, Holy Father, keep them. Or you might say, uh, protect them, guard them in your name. Jesus requests that his disciples be kept in the name of the Father. Throughout the scriptures, a person's name is sometimes used as a short form for the whole person. And that's what we have here. When Jesus says in verse 6 that he's manifested the Father's name, he's saying, to his, his, uh, he's saying before the Father that he's shown them who the Father really is. Now in verse 11, when he prays, Father, keep them in, he's saying basically, Father, keep them in the truth of who you are. Keep them in yourself. Now this is a request that assumes that Jesus has not only revealed the Father to his people, but that his people have entered into that truth by believing. This isn't a request for general protection, uh, just sort of a make sure I don't get hurt, but it's a prayer that the Father would guard His people in His truth, which they have already entered into by believing Jesus. Now, I assume here, and I think you should as well, that Jesus is praying for what He knows we need most. He's on a mission to the cross, and He's not going to waste time or waste words. And so it's important that we notice what he prays for. It's not the protection of his people from physical harm, though that's not unimportant to him. It's not the protection of his people from emotional harm, though uh, he cares for that and he shows great tenderness to us in our weakness. It's not that we would be spared hardship or that we would be taken out from the world. He prays explicitly, uh, he clarifies that explicitly in verse 15, but Jesus prays that the Father would keep us from the evil one. When Jesus is pressed to pray for his people, he prays that God would guard his people in the truth, that, they would, that he would keep them in the faith. It's a prayer that Satan, the evil one, would not be able to snatch any of the disciples out of his hand. Not one, except for Judas, who was not in fact a disciple, but the son of destruction as prophesied. Another way that you might put Jesus' prayer here, his prayer for protection, 
is that Jesus prays that Satan's prayer would not be answered. That Satan's prayer would not be answered. Yeah, Satan's prayer. Insofar as prayer is making our requests to God, Satan prays. Just look at Luke twenty-two thirty-one. You might remember this famous encounter between Jesus and Simon Peter. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded, Satan asked to have you. He's speaking there of the disciples. Why? So that he might sift you like wheat. Satan asks. Who does he ask? He asks God. What does he ask for? He asks that he might have the disciples. Why? So that he could violently knock them around in hopes that they would fall. That's Satan's prayer. That's Satan's prayer. It's a prayer for your destruction as Jesus' chosen, redeemed, and believing people. But remember when Jesus is talking to Simon Peter, what does he go on to say? He says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus prays that his Father would guard his people. He would guard his people against the devil, against the world, that he would keep us in the faith. Given the the threat that the devil and the world poses, we might summarize things by saying, as one writer said, that our salvation depends not so much on our prayers but upon Christ's prayers for us. Now, the purpose of Jesus' prayer for protection also needs to be noted. Look at verse 11 if you've still got your Bibles open. Keep them in your name, which you have given to me, so that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus prays uh, that his people would be preserved in the truth so that they would remain united in it. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this idea of unity because Jesus will go on in John 17 to uh, speak about it and we can cover that more then. But the assumption behind Jesus' request is that his disciples are united as they believe in him. Not because they share the same uh, political outlook or, or the same personalities or anything like that, but they are united because they have believed into Jesus. But as they live in the world, a world controlled or ruled by the devil, they will be attacked. The devil and the world will attack Jesus' people in an effort to drive them out from Christ and thus destroy the unity that they had in him. The disciples are united already because they've received Jesus' testimony from the Father. So the real threat to unity is not that they would have uh, uh, any sort of Uh, disagreement over uh, musical preference or over different political persuasions or anything of the sort. The real threat to unity, which Jesus identifies here, is not disagreement. The real threat to unity is apostasy. It's a falling away from the faith. The unity which the disciples have already, that they already have in Jesus would be broken only if Satan would cause one of them to step outside of the truth in which they stood together. The world and the devil conspire against our standing in the truth and our unity in the truth as a church and will use all sorts of strategies to drive us out from this truth and fracture our unity in it. He uses greed. Think of Judas, driven from Christ for 30 pieces of silver, a love of money. He uses uh, the love of appearance and pride. 
Think of Ananias and Sapphira who forsake the faith, yes, because they've, they, they wanted to hold on to some money, but also because they wanted to look good at the same time and thus lie to the Holy Spirit. They use doctrinal error, convincing us of, of things that are not true so that we would hold on to lies, forsake the gospel. He uses sensuality and inordinate uh, love of pleasure as we see in, in 2 Peter 2 in the book of Jude. These are the, the wiles, the strategies of the evil one, and he'll use all these to draw out people from Jesus and to, to attempt to fracture the unity that exists between the disciples in Christ. And yet, though the devil rages like this and though he uses these strategies, not one whom the Father has given to the Son will be lost. The unity which Jesus prays for will not be lost. Why? Well, because we belong to Jesus. So Jesus is praying for us because we are his, given to him by the Father. And because when Jesus asks the Father for something, because he always asks for what's agreeable to the Father's will, and because he is specially loved of the Father, Jesus gets what he prays for. His prayers are answered. So our standing in Christ and our standing united in Christ is kept secure by the prayers of Christ for us. Now I want to wrap up, but before I do, I want to leave us with two applications. First, we need to be realistic about the threats to faith. We cannot be naive. Franklin Roosevelt, as he was navigating American participation in the Second World War, uh, had to deal with um, a great deal of resistance to getting involved in that conflict. And he was becoming increasingly frustrated by people who thought that Nazism was really not that big a threat. And Roosevelt would speak of these people as being uh, cheerfully ignorant. He actually uses a slightly stronger language, but we'll say he called them cheerfully ignorant. We must not be cheerfully ignorant. We must not be cheerfully ignorant people who naively buy into the fantasy that we can live in the world without ever needing to fight, to resist, to flee, to stand firm. Some of us just need to wake up to the thousands of dangers that lurk all around us because uh, we're just sort of standing like one of those baby marine iguanas, uh, enjoying the warm beach, sitting still, not realizing that there are a thousand different snakes just staring at us, ready to make us into a tiny morsel, to wrap themselves around us and to slowly suffocate our souls. We're in a world in which the love of money and the selfish ambition and sexual temptation and an inordinate love of leisure and laziness and drunkenness and a critical spirit and false teaching and a thousand other dangers lurk seeking to drive us from the truth that is in Christ. See, Jesus prays for our protection against the evil one because he knows the evil one is dangerous. So some of us just need to wake up. You won't appreciate this prayer if you don't appreciate the danger of living in the world. Others of you, though, keenly feel the struggle of living as a Christian in the world. You're not naive, but maybe you're overwhelmed. Evil is, is palpable to you. It's like you can uh, feel the warm breath of Satan as he hisses in your ear. You have every right to be angry with her. Do you know what she did to you? Just look. 
Look. Look. You could leave them, you know. You'd be happier. You just need to get some things off your chest. Just say it. You can just feel Satan poking around your flesh, looking for every advantage, to take advantage of every one of your weaknesses. And you're exhausted. You're discouraged. Because standing firm in the world against the devil is hard work. Feel like the heavyweight boxer who has gone 10 rounds and has had to keep his guard up for the entire fight. You just get tired. If that's you this morning, look Look to this prayer. Look to the one who prays this prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus makes even now. It's a prayer that Jesus makes at this very hour for you, Christian. As one who himself was hated by the world, who endured the fiercest of Satan's temptations, he can sympathize in your struggle, but he does more than just sympathize. In the courts of heaven, he prays and he pleads with his father saying, these are the ones whom you've given to me. These are the ones for whom I have died. Guard him, protect her, keep them in the faith. And as the father looks upon his son and as he hears the prayers of his son, the father is pleased to apply all his power, all his power, to make sure that we will not fall, but stand in Christ, by grace, to the end. So Christians, see and hear Jesus praying for you, that you would be kept. Robert Murray McShane said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Brothers and sisters, Christ is praying for you, keeping you. Devil can rage, the world can rage, but resist knowing that Christ is praying for you and his prayers are keeping you. Let's pray. Holy Father, as your son prayed as the cross drew near and as He prays for us even at this very second, praying for us by name. We join with him in asking that you would keep us in your name, that we would be one even as you and he are one. As you've given us Christ, as you've given us to Christ, and as you've redeemed us from the world, and as you have given us faith, we pray that you would preserve us, that you would guard us, that you would keep us in that faith according to your awesome power. Thwart the the purposes of Satan, help us to stand firm against the world, keep us in the faith. Lord, we thank you for Christ, our great priest, whoever lives to intercede for us, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.